This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. Look, Wade, I, I hate to do this to you on the air, but I just can't hold it in any longer. I have to confront you about this. I was looking through some old DMs on the Seeing and Believing Twitter account, and I saw some that were directly to you, Wade, you asking you to be a co-host on another podcast. No, no, Kevin. Like you, you got it all wrong. They just, they just wanted me to guest on. There, there was, there was nothing permanent. I, uh-huh. I, I promise. Uh-huh. It, it was just a guest spot. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. I thought we had something special, but I guess, I guess not. It's, it's fine. It's fine. Well, speaking of stormy relationships, listeners. First up on the show, we're reviewing the new film from Sofia Coppola, the relationship drama on the rocks. And if you prefer your relationship drama with a healthy dose of the gothic, we've got you covered there as well with our review of the latest adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's classic novel, Rebecca. Both of those are coming up on this episode, episode 268 of Seeing and Believing. Does my foot smell funny? Because I was wondering... We're watching Breaking Bad. What? It's really good. It's a great show. Have you seen it? Yes, I have seen it. It's great. It's not for kids. What? Was there something bad on? No. Yeah. Hey, look, I can shuffle. Oh, wow, that's great. (laughs) We learned that all young girls should know how to shuffle and how to... Bluff. Bluff, right. (laughs) And how do you bluff? Poker face. Poker face. Poker face. Poker face. Nice, nice. Yes, listeners, we are here with episode 268, and that was a clip from On the Rocks. We're going to talk about that film in just a moment. And then we're also going to talk about Ben Wheatley's Rebecca, the new film on Netflix. It is based on a novel, but I know that story mostly, Kevin, from the Alfred Hitchcock film. I might have to compare it to that movie once or twice. Just fair warning. <laughs> I, you know, if if we're being brutally honest, that's probably true of a lot of us. It's definitely true of me. I have not read the book. I have seen the Hitchcock version, so that's kind of where my prior experience comes from as well. But first, this week's episode begins with a look at Sofia Coppola's newest film, On the Rocks. Here's the movie's official synopsis. In this comedy about aging, marriage, and the tenacious bond between parents and grown children, New York author and married mother of two, Laura, played by Rashida Jones, has become suspicious that her career-driven husband may be having an affair with a co-worker. A speculation encouraged by her caddish, pleasure-seeking father, played by, yes, Bill Murray, Kevin There are a couple of angles by which we could begin our discussion of this film. One of those 
is the question of the movie's primary duo, Jones and Murray. For now, let's go ahead and start there. Just what did you think of the two's chemistry? And were their performances enough to give this film, in your opinion, two thumbs up? (laughs) Well, it is uh, definitely a film that lives or dies on the strength of its two leads because it does really rely on the the fullness of these these characters and their relationship to really be bought by the audience in order for everything all the hijinks i guess you could say that ensue <laughs> yeah. to to really uh work as coppola intends them to and i think that that oh on balance uh jones and murray both acquit themselves well i think murray is especially good in in his role as uh the father in this film he does he he, i mean it's just he's such an interesting performer because he does have that you know laid-back murray vibe that has been so well established throughout his career and yet he's also really capable of tapping into this deep well of feeling when the moment demands it and he does it with such deftness that you don't really see any sort of dividing point between one mode and the other. He just effortlessly moves between the two. So I think he especially is a real pleasure to watch. Jones is is fine as well. I don't think that she has maybe as showy of a role as Murray does, so that might be something in the writing. And I think maybe since I mentioned the writing. That might be a good place to get into this film, Wade, because I think, oh, like the, regardless of the strength of the two performances, I think the real meat of this movie comes down to is the story that Coppola finds for them over the course of On the Rocks. Is is that a story that is fully engaging and uh, really works on its own terms? And that, at least for me, is something that I'm having more trouble answering. I had a pleasant time with this movie. I'm not sure if it's really going to stick with me for all that long because as much as I enjoyed spending time with this central duo, I'm not really sure that what they get up to in this movie is as memorable as they are. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, I I think the performances are, are great. Bill Murray, of course, is that scene... Stealer. I mean, he just kind of chews up everything around him. I think people are going to either hate him or just absolutely love him here. And I appreciate his performance because he takes someone who's kind of a scoundrel, someone who is, in many ways, could be considered a good person, a lot of flaws, and he makes him very likable. And I think that him and Jones play off each other very, very well. It, th- this movie is is very funny. I think the beginning of the film begins. Um, it begins. It, it's a little rote. Okay, so this is a story about a couple getting married and they have a couple of kids, and then their relationship is not what it once was. And that's that's all good and fine. I think where it gets interesting is when you get baggage from parental relationships and divorce, and that mixes and just sort of mashes with Jones and her relationship. And 
Bill Murray's character has a particular agenda. And I think you could get to the end of this movie and you could say, oh, he he wanted to investigate Jones's husband because he wanted to just hang out with her. But I think it's I think it's deeper than that. And so in the end for me, I think ultimately I I I don't think this is the most profound film ever. I don't know if I would say it's a profound film. It does say a couple of profound things that I'll try to get into without spoiling the plot. Uh, but overall, I found this to be a, actually a pretty enjoyable watch when relationship dramas like this are not usually easy watches. Marriage Story from last year uh, is an exception. Uh, it's a difficult watch, but I, but I think it I think it works. Uh, this one too, and I think most of that is because of the the writing within Murray's character. I think he really pulls it off. I think there's something in his characterization that is definitely interesting. And it's where, for me, this movie feels most alive is in how it, you know, he's he's kind of this, as you mentioned, this, this scoundrel, kind of a cad. He uh, flirts with literally every woman he meets, regardless of, you know, how old she is, what the context for their encounter is. He's just the sort of, man who really enjoys uh, exercising his natural charm. He's a charming person. He knows it. He likes to make use of that in all of his interactions, especially with women. Although we do see him kind of schmooze up a couple of uh, police officers who pull him over for a traffic violation. So <laughs> yeah. he's he's definitely equal opportunity when the situation calls for it, but he's definitely the sort of person who just really enjoys... Uh, using the natural charm that he's been uh, that he's either developed or been born with and the way that coppola characterizes him as kind of this guy who floats through life and in some ways understands that he is a scoundrel but finds ways to justify that to himself through uh, platitudes about how you know men aren't built for monogamy and and how you know there's there's two sides to every story and that's kind of what he uh, uses in order to live with himself and sleep well at night. I think that's really interesting and I like watching uh, Jones's character kind of both call him out on it but also be a sounding board for it because he finds her. As you as you mentioned in kind of a vulnerable vulnerable places, she wonders whether her own husband is uh, stepping out on her as well, and that's that's an interesting dynamic. I think for me, where I kind of get a little bit let, I, I, it's not a question of disliking it, but where the the film becomes less interesting to me is when it gets into the details of that marriage that kind of forms the catalyst for this plot. I don't really think there's a whole lot of specificity to the relationship between Jones and her husband, here played by uh, Marlon Wayans. It's not so much in the performances, it's just that they're kind it, it is kind of rote in the way that okay you know they have kids they their their sex life maybe isn't as exciting as it used to be they kind of just mostly talk about kids and work and she feels a little bit like she's boring and he's at work all the time and these are all conflicts that regardless of of whether or not they're realistic they just feel a little bit pat like we've seen them in umpteen different movies and i'm not really sure that Coppola does enough interesting with it to 
at least for me, make me feel fully invested in whether or not their marriage is actually going to survive. Yeah. No, and I think that's the the primary weakness of the movie. And that's what makes Murray's entrance in the film all that more special because he changes the dynamic of the story. And their their journey or their investigation of Laura's husband becomes a way for him to almost justify himself. So we do learn that he had he in the past he cheated on Laura's mother, they got a divorce, and he has as you mentioned those kind of long speeches about monogamy and it's almost as if he wants to catch Dean, Laura's husband, red-handed as if to say, "You know what? It's not just me." Like, it's just, it's everybody. Let me off the hook. And I think that's why Murray's performance uh, is is so good, because we can kind of see him doing that, and yet we still like him. And there's this, too, this realism that I appreciated about the relationship, where uh, there, there comes a moment when when there's kind of this big fight, and and we kind of know it's going to happen. It happens in every single movie like this. Characters get close to each other. They have this big blowout fight. And then we get this melancholy music and it shows each of them at different places. So like one of them walking in their apartment and the other one kind of just eating out alone. That's how it usually goes. And then something brings those characters back together. In this film, what's what's fascinating is is the two characters, they have this fight and it doesn't really get resolved per se. It's more like, ah, yeah, I, you know, sorry. And they go on. And I think, I don't know, I guess I think that's how families work a lot of times. Whether it's healthy or not, it's just kind of like there's junk in the past. There are things that we've done to hurt each other. And we get in this fight and then we just kind of move on with this understanding, not necessarily that we're going to brush it under the rug, but that it's we can't fix the past and we got to move forward. So there are moments, I think, of just profound insight into relationships, but it's not really that marriage relationship. It's more family relationships and and the relationship, of, of course, here between a father and daughter. Yeah, I, I see, I don't know how how much, how insightful, I guess, I find those moments. I do think that there's, a certain truth to them. I, I don't think that they're, they don't ring false to me. They don't ring like cliches to me necessarily, but there doesn't really seem to be much there that makes me sit up and, and take notice, I guess. There's a, a really interesting moment where uh, uh, Jones confronts Murray about about his past. Uh, she does it more than once over the course of the film. In this particular confrontation, though, he does something rather interesting where he uh, kind of, his face goes stony and he says, what happened to you? You used to be fun. And it's the sort of line that uh, you can imagine him saying to his daughter as he is in that moment, but you can also imagine him using it on the mistresses whom he's had in the past or the or the wife who he who he divorced while pursuing these other mistresses, and I think that 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 is maybe the the moment of insight that I wanted more of from this film, where Coppola t- 
teases out the ways in which uh, a man who enjoys the the wealth and charm and uh, privilege that comes with his position to the point where he doesn't really know how to turn it off. It kind of almost becomes a reflex to him, and that infects all of his relationships, especially with women, even when it comes to this daughter who he's trying to reconnect with. I think that's really interesting. I just don't, I don't find enough of that in the film to feel like it's something as insightful about uh, unhealthy family dynamics as something like Marriage Story, which even though it does lean a little bit harder into those big dramatic moments, I Mm. do think there's enough specificity about those conflicts at their core that feels to me a, a little bit more... Uh, exciting to to watch as an audience member. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely not on the same level as as Marriage Story, but I do appreciate some of those. I I do feel like there are profound realizations and these quiet moments or moments that are not stated directly that you just kind of figure out by watching. And then, of course, like I said, the movie is just really it's really funny. And I've I've mentioned this in the past. There are there are movies that find a way to mix uh, very difficult situations with humor. And that's really what life is. You can be laughing one minute while it feels like everything's kind of falling apart the next. And I I think that the film really does nail that. Uh, I think it's worth uh, talking about in terms of uh, Coppola's filmography, uh, something like Lost in Translation, which is crazy because it was released, I believe, in... 2003, 17 years ago, 17 years ago. And what I appreciate about that film, I'm not head over heels for a loss in translation, but I do like it quite a bit. And it's, it's the unstated nature of these relationships where just, just like that whisper at the end, you don't hear what happens. You don't get a thesis statement. And I think while this one is not as good as Lost in Translation, uh, On the Rocks doesn't contain those big thesis statement moments. And I appreciate that. I, I appreciate Coppola's ability to kind of observe these characters, observe this story. We do kind of get a big idea. We do get an ending. I won't spoil it. Um, that kind of wraps things up. But we're left to kind of learn a little bit more with the one exception, and I'll come back again, of the primary marital relationship between Laura and Dean. And and that is, uh, that doesn't feel very uh, Coppola-esque, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I think that's partly just a function of the fact that the central mystery of this story is that uh, we don't actually know whether Dean is having an affair. There's a, a lot of suspicious stuff going on, and you can really, go, up until the the big reveal, or at least the way Coppola means us to engage with the story, is you aren't supposed to be really sure what he's actually up to, whether or not uh, Bill Murray's character's suspicions are justified about him. That's kind of up in the air. I think the the reason the marriage relationship doesn't end up feeling fully fleshed out is in kind of trying to go for that ambiguity that kind of spreads out to all of their interactions where there's just not a whole lot of specificity there because the mystery has to be maintained 
and the audience has to be kept guessing. Um, I do think that Coppola for me is the most effective as a director when she really leans into into mood. Uh, I, I know you say you're, you're maybe not head over head over heels for Lost in Translation. I probably could describe myself that way. I like that film a lot, and I think what makes it so strong is the moments where it's not so much about, like you say, having a thesis statement about marriage or growing old or any of those things. The characters talk about that, but the moments that stick in my mind from Lost in Translation are the ones of Scarlett Johansson wandering through various parts of Tokyo or the the nighttime shots of Tokyo nightlife. Kind of these um, I don't want to say say gauzy. Gauzy isn't really the right word, but they they just kind of they're they're more impressionistic, and they just Coppola has a real talent for giving them a mood and an atmosphere that feels very very evocative of the characters' inter, in, internal states more so than the words they actually say. And there are a couple of moments in this film where that happens as well. I'm thinking of after. Uh, kind of a damning discovery that uh, Jones and Murray make uh, late at night. They they go to a bar and they're kind of sitting next to each other drinking. And Coppola's camera focuses on the martini glass in front of Jones's Laura, and a just a single drop falls into into the drink and and makes you know this very delicate little splash, and. That one shot, I think, does so much more to draw out really the stakes for Laura in this whole kind of caper more so than than any number of other scenes where they kind of like discuss men and women and monogamy. And I think that I would have liked to have seen this film maybe lean further into that and, and maybe maybe then the ambiguity of the marital relationship would have maybe gone down a little bit easier. No, I, I, th- I think I agree with that. Uh, we need a little more texture in the compositions. Uh, th- this film um, does seem to respect fidelity and over something like passion. And it does seem to be the work of, of someone who is mature, who's had a chance to just look at look at life and to understand the big picture and the ebbs and flow of relationships and the key uh, maybe uh, isn't just renewed passion in the same sense um, but an understanding and a true connection even even as life kind of goes back and forth so I, I think it's it's definitely uh, worth our listeners while to check this out on the rocks is currently streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. Listeners, check it out and let us know what you think. You can tweet us at cbeliefpod on Twitter, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We're going to hit up another film that's also streaming, this one on Netflix, and that's Ben Wheatley's Rebecca. Don't go anywhere.
Listeners, that song is Cupid by Artemis. We want to take an opportunity and thank you so much for supporting us via our Patreon campaign. We got a lot of different donation levels. You get some perks, get some good stuff. One of those, our favorite, is the What Can You Buy for $5 level. And Kevin, that begs the question, what could someone buy for five bucks? Uh, five bucks would get you a pair of glasses with uh, a cute puppy painted on the inside of the lenses. So if you are dog deprived in, in your uh, lockdown life, then just put on the, the specs and you've got a puppy right there uh, right there in front of you. I'm, the possibilities with that are endless. Like you could... Well, you, you, you just, just I mean, the possibilities me. <laughs> are a static image of a puppy, so I, I don't I don't know how far five dollars will get you okay. in this case. You're standing in front of a pool, you put them on, and now the puppy is walking on water. Pretty crazy. Here's how it could get bad. <laughs> You're looking at the street, you put it on, a car is coming, you think a puppy is about to meet its maker. That that would be uh that would be the difficulty of a $5 purchase like this. It's probably a situation where a healthy ability to distinguish between reality and artifice <laughs> is a must before using. I think that might be on the warning label somewhere. I'm not <laughs> sure. Surgeon General might have gotten in on that action. But yes, definitely use with caution. Yeah, definitely use with caution. If you don't know the line between artifice and reality, then supporting us via our Patreon campaign for five bucks. (laughs) We'll help you with that. (laughs) Would help you out. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Yeah, we always uh, appreciate any sort of support we get from you, our listeners. We also love hearing from you on Twitter or over email. We did hear a little bit about our review of The Trial of the Chicago 7, which came out last week. Uh, Beth Rinaldi tweeted us just to sing the praises of Mark Rylance in his role as William Kunstler Mm. in that film, which I definitely agree, Beth. It's just... I mean, it's so predictable at this point for Rylance to be great that, you know, it it almost feels like an, uh, more of an event if he were bad at something. But he is one of that film's highlights for sure. So thanks for the, the tweet about that. Listeners, if you have thoughts about that film or either of the ones we're talking about today, of course, we'd love to hear from you. Wade just gave you our contact info, so you can definitely follow that to let us know your thoughts. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. She wouldn't have a lady's maid, you know. I don't want anyone but you, Danny. Do you see how tall she was? Hmm. She could wear anything with a figure like hers. Mrs. Davis. 
Does Mr. De Winter ask you to keep the room like this? It doesn't have to. She's still here. Mm. Reveal her. I wonder what she's thinking about you. Be happy. Happy? No, he'll never be happy. She was the love of his life. We're back with the second half of our show, and Wade, I have a really dark secret to to share with you. Okay. <laughs> I don't have a very good introduction to this second segment. <laughs> well, you know. I thought you were going to talk about someone dying in a boating accident and their ghost potentially haunting a mansion, but it's okay. Uh, we'll just we'll just let the story speak for itself. Okay. Come on, Wade. <laughs> I would only if if I had a secret like that in my past, which I'm not saying that I do, but if I did, I would certainly not share that with you. That would just be for uh, the person who I just married. So you know that's. <laughs> Let's make sure to keep a healthy work life and home life separation here. <laughs> well, and, and not even to the person that you just married, because you got to stay mysterious. You can't let everything out at once. Oh, that's 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 right. I, I do have to, man, I need to get better at this, I guess. Well, <laughs> listeners, uh, you will get a little bit more tutoring in how to be a mysterious aristocrat with dark secrets if you tune in to Netflix's new film, Rebecca, which of course is an adaptation of the Daphne du Maurier novel. It's also uh, seen as a remake of Alfred Hitchcock's 1940 Best Picture winner. This one is directed by Ben Wheatley, perhaps best known for genre movies like High Rise and Free Fire, but who's also done more off-the-beaten-track work such as 2013's A Field in England. This new version of Rebecca replaces Joan Fontaine with Lily James as the second Mrs. De Winter, and Laurence Olivier with Army Hammer as the broody Maxim De Winter as it retells Du Maurier's story of an innocent young woman who's swept off her feet by an aristocrat and brought back to his enormous country estate where, surprise, surprise, dark secrets are everywhere. The new Mrs. De Winter finds herself at odds with the cold-hearted housekeeper Mrs. Danvers, played here by Kristen Scott Thomas, seeking to fill some mighty big shoes by reprising Judith Anderson's iconic performance, and with the memory of Maxim's first wife, Rebecca, which haunts the mansion like a ghost. So you touched on this a little bit in the first segment, Wade, that you had not read the novel, but you had seen Hitchcock's original, as I mentioned just now. It won Best Picture back in the early 1940s. So my question for you is, does this new film from Netflix carve out its own niche from Hitchcock's iconic film? And did you find that it justified being a remake? <laughs> well, you bef before we started this segment, you, you told me that was the question. And um, I laughed as I'm laughing now. No, uh, <laughs> no, the answer, the answer is no. Uh, I, I, I like the 1940 film quite a bit. I think I think there's a presence, there's an atmosphere to the movie that's just, I mean, it's Hitchcock. And it it feels to me, too, a, a different Hitchcock film 
than most Hitchcock films. It's a little bit subdued, and I just, I think it's fantastic. Uh, this one, it just, I mean, we'll get into this. I feel like it misfires on everything the 1940 film does well. And I, I don't, I don't want to set this review up as, oh, Hitchcock is great. You can never compete with him. Uh, th- this, without the original Hitchcock film, uh, which is, I guess, not the original because it's based on a book, but without that previous film, this is still not a very good movie. It's, it's not unwatchable. It's not this one star out of five that I've seen other people give it. Um, but it's just, it, it really can't compete with, uh, with, which hit with Hitchcock's movie. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, I I might have to turn in my my cinephile card here because going into this film, I wasn't I wasn't as pessimistic about it as maybe other people might have been because I've seen, of course, Hitchcock's original and I like it. I don't love it, and so I was kind of thinking, you know, maybe this this film, you know, will take a different tack and. Even if it doesn't surpass it, at least since I'm not crazy about the original film, it's not like it's trying to measure up to some impossible standard. And I don't think that really helped Ben Wheatley in this case. I'm I'm inclined to agree with you, Wade, that it doesn't really measure up to Hitchcock's film. And you know, part of that I think is, at least from my perspective, not necessarily a fault of the film. I just there's something about this story as it's told in both these film versions where I'm pretty much on board for everything at the mansion. Once we get to the inquest where the truth about the first Mrs. DeWinter, Rebecca, comes to light, that's kind of where my interest tends to drop off, both with Hitchcock's film and with this film. The big advantage that Hitchcock has is that he's working with that just absolutely iconic cast and i mean you <laughs> yeah <laughs> at, at the time of course it was iconic because you know it was it was a brand new film but even watching it there's a certain archetypal quality to i i feel like especially uh joan fontaine as the protagonist and uh judith anderson as mrs danvers that it's just it's something that's going to be really hard to surpass and while I appreciate kind of the cast of this film swinging for the fences, they don't really make it all the way there. So what we're kind of left with is a film that kind of has the same problems that at least I have with Hitchcock's film, but it doesn't really have the 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 peaks that Hitchcock film reaches either. And I think I don't know. Maybe it's it's the black and white that just lends the gothic goings on a more moody impressiveness to it. But I just I, I can't really recommend this remake either. Yeah, I mean the black the black and white it, it certainly helps. I I don't share your criticism of the nineteen forty film. I think that I wouldn't say the twist, but the revelation and the fallout from the revelation. Uh, I I think it I think it works really well. This film has its own issues. And, you know, we mentioned this whenever we were reviewing Vast of Night, and it was, and we talked about it last week too, uh, because it was in a Christ and Pop Culture review online. But when you watch a film from the 1940s and 1950s, uh, you, you gotta pay attention. Characters 
talk. And that's not to say that there aren't a lot of films made now where characters talk, but it just, it, it definitely feels like you're on a different wavelength from a majority of movies. And what's, what's interesting about this film is this Rebecca is a movie that tells us what we need to know without doing any of the work to make us feel that. So here's a great example. At the beginning of the movie, Lily James and Army Hammer, their characters sit down and they've already met, but you feel like it's going to be this kind of meet cute moment. They have breakfast together. They start their conversation and it's, it's really just kind of like housekeeping, like, Oh, you know, you can sit here, blah, blah, blah. And then the film cuts away and we get the waiter. And he's kind of, he's exasperated because they've been at this table talking for so long. And then we get a shot of them and they're just kind of cutting up and they're laughing. And the film is telling us they hit it off. They're starting to fall in love. They like each other, but it didn't show us anything. We don't, we don't know why, except that, I don't know, they're around the same age and they seem to both maybe get along, but but why would they instantly fall for each other in this whirlwind of a romance? And I, I think the rest of that early sequence where they do fall in love is kind of much of the same because we quickly jump into the mystery of his previous wife, Rebecca. That carries through throughout the entire movie. And then just the atmosphere. Hitchcock had this incredible atmosphere. It was, this, you mentioned gothic. And it's not a ghost story, but it kind of is because Rebecca's presence is felt everywhere in the manor. Here, that's certainly not the case. When they go to Manderley, we're kind of told better presence is there, but there's nothing visually that helps to communicate that. The film tries to add uh, a ghostly presence to the movie uh, a couple of times where uh, we'll see scenes and we'll hear conversations, but the conversations are happening and vi visually we're seeing another scene take place. So it's this kind of sporadic editing that's made to feel almost kind of out of body, I guess, if you will. Uh, but that doesn't do the job of communicating that this previous tenant, the lady of the house, her presence is still there. And she's still influencing what's going on, even though even though she's dead. Well, credit where it's due to Ben Wheatley. I do appreciate that he he's not merely just directing on autopilot here. He's not just trying to recapture the same qualities of Hitchcock's film and just sort of jazz them up for a 2020 audience. He does do some things stylistically that are at least kind of forging his own path. And you touched on it a little bit when you mentioned the editing. There are a couple of sequences in this film where the the presence of Rebecca and the the oppressiveness that Lily James's unnamed protagonist experiences over the course of the film. There, there are a couple of sequences where Wheatley does a lot of intercutting of, of uh, various um, shots where the violence of the, of the editing is kind of meant to mimic the, the 
inner turmoil that Lily James's character is is feeling in that moment. And that's that's an interesting attempt. I think the problem is though that it comes across as as not fully successful because it's not really of a piece with the the rest of the story. The thing about about the gothic uh, mode, I guess, that Rebecca as a work kind of resides in is that it really relies a lot on atmosphere. It's not so much about really getting in the audience's face with how spooky it all is. It kind of just sets the scene and then lets you kind of follow the protagonist through you know each scene like they're moving from one room to the other in this ghost haunted yes you know maybe you're not uh mansion and i think wheatley's version just never really uh latches on to the fact that that's what is most important in a gothic story like this is just that atmosphere that mood this film doesn't really have that and it seems like wheatley is trying to cover for that by making it a little bit more in your face with that editing. He seems to try to add a little bit more more heat to the romance between uh, the two main characters. But I think the story is actually, it benefits from Maxim de Winter being a little bit more standoffish and the unnamed protagonist not really having the kind of... Uh, sexy romance that she maybe anticipated when she first married him. I think that's that's part of the oppressive mood of the story that works in Hitchcock's film and just is not present at all here and what replaces it doesn't add anything but rather detracts from that mm. that overall mood. Yeah, no, I mean and that's I think it's a good thought because when you aren't able to show how the characters fell for each other you have to let the audience know in a different way and it's like oh let's just let i don't know let's just add the heat like that that'll let people know that they're in a passionate relationship and it comes across as a little a little bit lazy i i do think that there is one theme that wheatley attempts to uh, to emphasize in this film versus another and that is the class division and and we get that of course a little bit with uh, Lily James's character um but more so with the the staff and we get this sort of tiered layer we've got the staff below and the the owners on top and i i think what Wheatley was attempting to do is to somehow explain Danvers's obsession with Rebecca in terms of, okay, she somehow gave her attention or proximity to Rebecca, gave her some sort of power or allowed her to be close to a power that she didn't have because of this division within within class. And I, I think that he attempts that. And I, I found that to be a, a kind of interesting. And it comes together a little bit at the end. And I don't want to blame... 
the performers here. I, I think that uh, Kristen Scott Thomas as uh, Mrs. Danvers, I think she does a fine job. Uh, I mean, Army Hammer, he's he's okay. It's it's a tough trick to pull with Maxim's character because you have to you have to portray this relationship, and then it has to be standoffish, and then it has to come back. That's really tough. And the writing doesn't give Army Hammer any help here. Uh, and then Lily James, I think she's really great. I think she's great in a lot of stuff she does. I don't think that she has the material that she needs, but I, I don't think she turns in a bad performance. I, I think she really kind of gives it the best um, that she that she can. I actually really like Kristen Scott Thomas as Mrs. Danvers here. It, it The original is such, like I said, it's such an iconic role that you almost go in expecting Kristen Scott Thomas to be not as good. And I don't I don't think that's necessarily true. I think she really does find uh, an interesting way to play Danvers that isn't merely a copy of the original, but also seems it, it feels right for the story. Uh, I think James and Hammer are both fine as far as it goes. I think really just what lets them down is the directing. And that's something that, you know, while they're on set, they don't really have any control over over what the cinematography is going to eventually look like or, you know, exactly what shots are going to be selected. And I think at the end of the day, that's what this film comes down to is the the atmosphere of the original 1940 film is such that you know the, the, that black and white cinematography is obviously you know of a piece with the time, but it also lends this ethereal quality to the story that makes you really buy into the the everything that's going on here. You buy that Joe Fontaine is still going to love Maxim even when the truth finally comes to light. You really buy that she can be driven almost to her wit's end by the the series of slights that she receives from Danvers. It, there's an ability to buy into it, and that's partly because of the cinematography, just the way the film looks. This film, it's got this mostly warm color palette and uh, the way Wheatley films these characters, he definitely gives them more, there's more carnality, I guess, to the relationship, which is an interesting thought, but it all kind of contributes to create a film that doesn't really feel gothic at all. And you really, you just need that kind of atmosphere in order to be able to buy into what's going on. Yeah, and you do, and and you you need a... I guess you could say a creepier ending. I, I guess you get to the end of the movie and it's like, oh, it's all about love. Like, you know, and it seems to be that this story is, it's more than that. It's about obsession uh, and, of course, love, but obsession first and foremost. And there's this the secondary story that's going on in, in the background. I'll also say, too, there's a, a big revelation, a confession scene and that is just not filmed all too well, even in terms of, I felt like, the, the audio. Um, and I, I don't know if that helps with that third act turn, which I know bothers you uh, with the original, but, but here it just, it feels, it just feels very clunky uh, as well. Yeah, that that confession scene definitely doesn't do the the third act any favors and... Yeah, I, I just, I don't, it, it's, it's just kind of limp. 
and limp isn't really kind of what you hope for in a in a gothic romance, especially one with the legacy of this one. Listeners, if you've had a chance to catch up with Netflix's remake of Rebecca, directed by Ben Wheatley, let us know your thoughts. Or if you have any thoughts about Hitchcock's original, perhaps you agree with Wade that it's a masterpiece and you are shocked. Shocked, I say, by the fact <laughs> that I don't like it all that much. Let us know that as well. Uh, we'd be happy to hear that too. But we've reached the end of the show, Wade, which means that it's time for us to share one recommendation from the world of television or film. What do you have for us this week? Yeah, well, you know, Bruce Springsteen released a new album uh, this last weekend. And Uh so, of course, I got to talk about that. But what was really (laughs) neat, of course, is that uh, Tom Zimney uh, filmed a documentary and they just released that the same day uh, as the album and on Apple Plus or no Apple TV Plus. I always get that mixed up. And it's just it's really kind of fascinating documentary because it's behind the scenes of Springsteen and the E Street Band recording their album and over the course of about five days. This is the first time that Springsteen has recorded with the E Street Band in studio uh, since. Uh, born in the USA a long time ago, before I was born. And so it's fun to watch these individuals interact. Now, most of the film is just behind the scenes uh, as as they're recording and like you get the song. So it's it's like a it's like a music video um, with them in the studio, a bunch of music videos together. So it's not I wouldn't say it's it, it's not uh, revolutionary or uh, revelatory, but uh, it is nice to watch these interactions. This is an album about what it means to grow old. It's an album about uh, about death and this kind of rich monochrome black and white photography I think is uh, really beautiful. So if you're a Springsteen fan, uh, this is, a I think, a really good documentary to check out. Apple TV Plus and then just the... The album letter to you is really good. It's uh, and I know I'm a fan, but it's just it's it's really fantastic. So uh, really cool uh, little gift this past weekend. Yeah, well, I would have I would have been uh, a little bit surprised to be honest if, if uh, I didn't hear you talk about the new Springsteen yeah. <laughs> at some point uh, in the next two weeks. So I'm glad that we you know we we've, we've got that uh, there. So I know you haven't been body snatched or, yeah, or yeah. a clever imposter or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, got it, got it out of the way. It's it's done now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, so, you know, I was a little bit down on uh, Wheatley's uh, work in the gothic subgenre. And that was that was making me think, you know, like, what is a an example of a movie that does it right? That kind of gets at what I was talking about earlier. And I actually recommended this pretty recently on the show. So in order to make up for that, I'm going to just kind of make this a twofer and cheat even more. Oh, okay. So uh, the the first recommendation is 1961's The Innocents, directed by Jack Clayton mm-hmm. and starring Deborah Kerr, uh, written by Trimun Capote. It's just an absolute stunner of a movie, and it really does an incredible job at showing just how you can make got the gothic genre seeing on screen create mood uh work with actors to turn in a performance that feels just the right pitch in order to fit in with kind of the this the the 
simultaneous repression and overheated angst of that time period. I think that that's really something that the innocence does well. If you are looking for something a little bit more recent, maybe a little bit more R-rated than Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak is also, I think, just an incredible example of what somebody who knows the gothic genre and knows how to recreate it in visual form on screen. Uh, I think that film also just really captures the the way that the man with the dark secret trope can be made to be genuinely tragic and and horrifying both at the same time. And I think there's something about that that's just so integral to the genre working on screen. So yeah, Crimson Peak and The Innocence, both great gothic movies and better choices for your Halloween weekend viewing than Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have not seen uh, The Innocence. I need to check that out. I have seen Chris Crim- Crimson. I have seen Crimson Peak. And uh, we reviewed it on the show. I wasn't a huge fan, but I have not watched it since. And I, I need to. I mean, it's a beautiful film to look at, whether the story works for you or not. So it's definitely <laughs> worth a, a rewatch. I just have I've not gotten to it. I... I, I'm trying to feel, I'm trying to find that Halloween watch and I don't, I haven't landed yet. I, what we, Priscilla and I, we watched Poltergeist, uh, uh, last week and that was really great. So we've got to find, we've got to find a really good creepy movie to, to end out Halloween on. T- 2020, it's got to be big. Yeah. Yeah. I, that makes sense. I, I feel like, Wade, that you are just a little bit too down on my man, Del Toro. It just seems like there's <laughs> too many of his movies that you aren't crazy about. And, and that's a problem. And we need to address that. Um, have you seen The Devil's Backbone? Uh, Since we're looking for good Halloween picks, yeah, yeah, I've seen that one. I like that one. I do. I, okay. I, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of Chronos. Uh, Chronos, yeah, yeah, that's that. That one's that one's maybe not one of his better ones. I I can definitely give you that. Well, I'm glad that you've seen The Devil's Backbone. I was going to suggest <laughs> that as your as your great Halloween spooky movie. But uh, if you've already seen it, I guess we'll have to keep searching. You have to keep searching. Yeah. Well, listeners, that is our show. I hope you have a great Halloween this year. I know 2020 has felt like one really long Halloween, but now it's time (laughs) to actually dress up and celebrate. I mean, masks and everything. Uh, But hopefully this October 31st is a great day for you. Let us know some of your favorite Halloween watches. We'd love to retweet those. And then hopefully it'll help me pick out something that I can can watch on October 31st. 31st. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.
This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?